Hey everyone, it is Kiddish Club. We have a special episode for you today. Uh, our guest today is Elon Levy, who is the official spokesperson for the Israeli government. Now you might have seen videos of him because he's out there. He's out there uh, speaking on behalf of the government. He does the media interviews on behalf of the Israeli government and explains quite eloquently actually uh, Israel's position with regard to this war. And he has a super hard job and we're going to we're going to ask him about it because I mean we all know what's what's going on in the world. We all know that basically Israel can't can't get a break mostly from the media, most of the mainstream media with with a few small exceptions. Most of them do this whole game where, like, oh, Israel's not proportionate and, oh, it's a genocide, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's the guy who has to take that stuff and flip the script on them. And the truth of the matter is he does do a great job. Uh, there, was, there was one interview that went viral recently, and it's a really long clip. It's, a, it's about six minutes, but I really think it's worth it. I think it's going to get everybody into the right mood for this interview. So here it is. Can I ask you, what about the children of Gaza? Because more than 4,000 of them have been killed as a result of the Israeli response. The suffering in the Gaza Strip as a result of Hamas's decision to declare war on us on October 7th is heartbreaking. None of us want to be in this situation. This isn't a war that Israel started. It's not a war that we wanted. It's not a war that we even expected. It's a war that Hamas declared on us with the October 7th massacre, with that spectacular cruelty when they invaded and tortured and mutilated children in front of their parents before executing them, burning whole families alive. And we are doing everything we can inside the Gaza Strip to get civilians out of harm's way. That's why we've been warning them for three weeks to get out of northern Gaza temporarily for their own safety. Okay. The Israeli army has placed over 20,000 individual phone calls urging people to leave and today facilitating another humanitarian corridor so the people of northern Gaza can get out of the way until the fighting is over okay, and we proceed to destroy we're looking the terrorists at who perpetrated October 7th. More than 10,000 people killed in Gaza. RT Shakir said that what's happening looks like something approaching revenge. No, 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 no. Uh, what Israel is pursuing is its legitimate right of self-defense, as most Western governments have accepted, to defeat the terror organization that perpetrated October 7th, so it can never do it again. But was the there not another Hamas way to do that? This response has been unprecedented. More than 10,000 people killed. I hear and understand your concern. I wish we could send an email to Hamas and make it disappear, but unfortunately, that's not the case. It's a genocidal jihadi group that is openly vowing in English to do a second October 7th, a third, a fourth, until they kill every man, woman, child in the country. Our response is proportionate to that threat, to the threat to annihilate the Jewish people and the state of Israel. We're doing everything we can to get civilians out of harm's way. But when Hamas embeds itself within the civilian population, using them as human shields, it is recklessly endangering them. And we think that the international community is right to be outraged and that that outrage should be directed at Hamas inside Gaza and not at the army that has been doing everything it can, I would say, more than any army in the history of warfare to get civilians out of harm's way. Those 10,000 dead, they are not all Hamas militants, are they? 
So, first of all, I would urge caution about quoting numbers that are being distributed by Hamas. Well, the World remember, Health Organization is, has also said well, it finds them reliable. The World Health Organization is quoting Hamas. There, there are no independent organizations that are getting their numbers from anywhere other than the terror organization that on 7th of October beheaded and burned whole families and then lied about it to the international media. Thousands have died. Would you agree that thousands have died? I do not know the exact number. I'm saying, as we saw just the other week when an Islamic Jihad rocket hit a hospital and Hamas immediately blamed Israel, that the world should treat anything Hamas is saying with a huge pinch of salt because Hamas is deliberately spreading disinformation to attract international sympathy and stop Israel from exercising its legitimate right to dismantle the terror organization that perpetrated the biggest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. UN agencies and charities have also called for a ceasefire. However, they say the humanitarian situation on the ground is unbearable, that civilians are bearing the brunt of this. Will Israel call a ceasefire at some point soon? No, there will be no ceasefire that leaves our hostages inside Gaza and that leaves Hamas in power. Hamas, there was a ceasefire on the 6th of October. Hamas broke it and brutally massacred 1,400 people. Hamas doesn't get to ask for a ceasefire just because it's being clobbered. There was a ceasefire. And another ceasefire now would literally let Hamas get away with murder. And it would leave it free to do it again with a military machine and with 240 hostages in Gaza. And even worse, it would send the message that democratic states that come under such a violent attack have no right to defend themselves. That so how long will it take for Israel to defend itself? How long will it take to destroy Hamas? And if Hamas were destroyed, what would Gaza look like afterwards? Who would govern it? I'm not going to speculate on the timetable, but unfortunately, the road ahead is going to be long and it is going to be difficult. You know, for many years, Israel avoided this sort of ground operation because we didn't want to see the scenes that we're seeing now. But the October 7th massacre left us no choice. Now, we're exploring several contingencies for what can happen the day after Hamas. The common denominator among all of them is that the Gaza Strip must be demilitarized so it can't be used as a base for terror attacks against Israel. What I can say is the day after Hamas, the Gaza Strip will be such that it no longer presents a security threat to the south of Israel, will give security to Israel's people, and will give new opportunities for the Palestinians. And do you new believe opportunities that what Israel... Do you believe what Israel is now doing to the Gaza Strip, destroying infrastructure, killing thousands of people, leaving children orphaned, will make Israel a more secure state? I wish we had another choice other than to destroy the terror organization that perpetrated the biggest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. I wish we could ask Hamas nicely to leave us alone and they would leave us in peace. But they are openly vowing to perpetrate another October 7th again and again and again until they have destroyed our state. That was from an interview with Ghazi Hamad, the Hamas spokesman to Lebanese TV, on the 24th of October, a threat that he since repeated in subsequent interviews. This is the threat we are facing. A jihadi group that openly says it wants to destroy our country and murder every man, woman and child. And in order to defend ourselves, we have to eliminate that threat. And I know the scenes in the Gaza Strip are very, very difficult to watch. And we hold Hamas entirely accountable for all civilian deaths and suffering that result from its decision to declare war against our people, sending thousands of rockets at us, okay. brutally massacring people and embedding themselves in a, the most cowardly fashion among civilians. Elon Levy, who's spokesperson for the Israeli government. Thank you so much for joining us on the... So this is not unique, right? They all these news reporters, interviewers, journalists, whatever, they all play this game and she's doing the same thing. It's like this passive aggressive belittling and moral equivalency like like, oh, but what about 
does it make sense that all of these Palestinians should die? Are all Palestinians responsible? Is that fair? And he, you know, it, it's so ridiculous on its face because, and, and we talked about this a little bit previously, and, and Shapiro talked about this at his debate at Oxford, where would just flip the script and make believe instead of Hamas or instead of Gaza, it was the Nazis or ISIS. Nobody said anything when America was bombing ISIS. Nobody said anything. There was no protests because everyone understood that there's a goal. The goal is these people are evil and they must be eliminated by any means necessary. And at the end of the day, civilian casualties, yes, they're horrible. But you know whose responsibility they are? Hamas, not the IDF. But it's also probably exhausting for him because it's not just this network that puts him through that. It is also the the BBC. It is also CNN. It is also MSNBC. It is also whoever has him, whoever interviews him. It's the same narrative. It's the same presumption of you know Israeli occupation slash aggression slash improportionality. So. It's it's a lot. It's a lot to have to deal with, especially when you know very clearly that what occurred on October 7th would not be tolerated anywhere on planet Earth. The only right. place that it has any merit is in the small state the size of New Jersey that we call Israel. That's absolutely right. So he's a very interesting guy, and I'm curious to find out how he got into this job. I think he's actually ready to come on, so we're going to jump straight to our guest. All right, let's do it. And we're privileged to have with us Elon Levy. He is the spokesperson for the Israeli government, which in my book means you're almost like the spokesperson for the entire Jewish people. Welcome. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. I mean, the reality is, is that to most of the world, Israel and Jews, especially at this time, they're one and the same. So, you know, with that, it, it's a big weight you have on your shoulders. Uh, no pressure. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, look, you're right. This is a war that Israel is fighting for the future of the state of Israel and for the future of the Jewish people. Uh, because, first of all, within the state of Israel, there can be no future for the state of Israel in a world in which terrorist monsters are able to perpetrate the sort of massacre they committed on the 7th of October and get away with it. In a world in which they can get away with it, our country simply can't exist. But also more widely, we are seeing a global war against the Jewish people with Jewish communities around the world that have come under attack. The horrific scenes of anti-Semitism on campus of hostage posters that have been torn down. And I think this is a horrific moment that has really reminded Jews all around the world, in Israel and in the diaspora, that we're all in the same boat and we all share one fate as the Jewish people. And it's horrific that it took such a massacre to remind us of that basic fact, just how much we need each other and just how much we share not only a common history, but also a common fate. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. And I want to actually touch on a few of those points that you brought up. But before we do, just a quick question. Obviously, you're not, you mean, you don't sound like a stereotypical Israeli. Where do you hail from? Uh, I don't uh, sound uh, like a <laughs> typical Israeli. Well done. Uh, uh, British born and raised. I was born, born in London to Israeli parents. 
uh, grew up in the UK, completed my university studies at Oxford and Cambridge. And then in 2014, I thought, hey, what comes next? What completes the sequence? And the answer was the IDF. So in 2014, I made Aliyah. I came just at the end of Operation Protective Edge, uh, the 2014 war between Israel and Hamas. That ended at 7 o'clock in the evening. I landed at 7.30. And the following morning, uh, I was already at the enlistment center uh, showing up to volunteer for military service in Israel. And uh, I've been here ever since. I haven't been able to leave. Amazing. And let me, let me just say one thing. I don't know if you're aware of this, but to us in America, and we have listeners all over the world, but to us in America, anyone who speaks with a British accent, automatically we give them like much more clout. You know, it automatically Oh, I know, more. I know. You do know. It's okay. the only reason I got this position. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So uh, I want to dive right in to some of the things you said. Uh, what do you, you, you mentioned the universities and everyone in the world sees what's going on in the United States and the universities. You mentioned the posters and the ripping down of posters. One of the things with the posters now, it's almost starting to, there's a backlash going on where there's a lot of Jews saying, stop with the posters because all it's doing is inflaming people. What, what do you think about that? I think that actually the movement of Jews around the world who have been putting up those posters is one of the most inspiring campaigns of Jewish mass mobilization in history, uh, on a par with what we saw when world Jewry came together to demand the freedom of Soviet Jewry, who were stuck behind the Iron Curtain. What we are seeing now is a concerted attempt among anti-Semites of the world to deny the humanity of the Jew. It's a persistent campaign of dehumanization where they are unable to accept that Jews also suffer pain, that Jews can also be victims, that Jews can also grieve. And I think it's so important to continue shoving that evidence in everyone's face and not to back down in the face of bullies. Of course, people putting up the posters need to be aware of their surroundings, make sure that they're not putting themselves at danger. But no, I don't think, I don't buy the argument that says if you put up a poster of a three-year-old orphan who has been abducted by Hamas, that's only going to antagonize the anti-Semites. Come on, we don't live in a world like that anymore. We can't show weakness in the face of bullies. We have to be strong, we have to be proud, and we have to start fighting back. Well said. And I assume that, well, the question actually I would ask is, how do you prepare yourself? Uh, I, we, before you came on, we were talking about a uh, interview you did with RTE Ireland. And as you mentioned, it went viral. And, you know, it's very obvious the, the interview interviewer was being a little passive aggressive, but really trying to, you know, attack you in a sense. How do you explain the global news media, it's really almost everybody, except in America, let's say Fox News, aside from Fox News, everybody else automatically, when they, any question they ask you, it's with the assumption that Israel is wrong. The response that Israel has to the Gaza Strip, you know, it's not equal. And they constantly talk about that. But why? Why is it so difficult for them to understand? What do you think that is? I think that's the million dollar question. And look, it's certainly fair that we are held to higher standards than Hamas. I wouldn't want to be held to the standards of Hamas. But the disbelief with which the media treats everything Israel says, 
compared with the totally gullible way with which they swallow what Hamas says, is truly astonishing. I can have one interview in which the reporter will say, uh, we've seen the IDF footage of terror tunnels underneath the Shifa hospital, which we cannot independently verify. What they mean is they haven't right. tried to independently verify it. And then uncritically parroting the numbers presented by Hamas. And when you push back and say, look, these are the numbers being presented by the terror group that on October 7th burned, beheaded and abducted babies and then lied about it. They'll say, well, those are the best numbers we have. So what do you expect us to do? It's it's astonishing. It really is astonishing, that difference in standards. And I think you just have to keep pushing back when you know that the facts are on your side, that morality is on your side, that international law is on your side. You have to go on the offensive and put interviewers back on their spot and not allow yourself to be in a position where you're on the defensive and you're having to explain what Israel is doing. We know what we're doing. We know that we're fighting the most moral fight imaginable against the genocidal monsters who perpetrated the October 7th massacre and are threatening to do it again. And I think that other people owe an accounting and other people need to be held to account. The Palestinians, Hamas, the UN agencies that were complicit and did nothing, they owe everyone answers. And it's important to put them on the back foot and remind them of that. You had a line that you mentioned in that interview, and I wrote it down because it is the greatest line I've heard since, and it's the best way to respond to any of these criticisms. And the line that you had was the now retaliation. Now I'm curious, what was it? <laughs> you said that- What did I say? The, the question that they always ask is it's not proportional. And you said the retaliation is proportionate to the threat. And I said, that is perfect. That should be on every Jewish person's lips. Exactly. That, and, and that, by the way, is international law. International law insists on proportionality. Now, proportionality doesn't mean symmetry. It doesn't mean that if Hamas invaded Israel and burned, beheaded, tortured, mutilated, and raped 1,200 people, we have to do the same. If that were the meaning of proportionality, it would be impossible because clearly none of our soldiers would want to do that. What international law requires is that with each strike, with each specific strike, the expected gain, the, the, the um, incidental damage to civilians may not be, the expected incidental damage may not be disproportionate to the expected gain of that strike. And so the proportionality is proportionate to the threat. That is what proportionality is about. And the threat that we face is a genocidal terror organization motivated by a twisted, evil, Nazi-like ideology, generously funded by Iran, that is openly saying it will perpetrate as many October 7ths as it takes in order to wipe out every man, woman, child in the country. And so our response is proportionate to that threat to ensure that Hamas can never again perpetrate attacks like that. And the world gets it. That's why the United States, the United Kingdom have all said this war has to end with the total destruction of Hamas. Because they understand that if we don't do that, Hamas is going to reoffend. And we're going to find ourselves in the same cycle of violence again in the Gaza Strip after they're able to claim more innocent lives like they did on October 7th. Well, one thing that you just mentioned was the regular Palestinians. There was a, a, a poll, I'm not sure if you saw it, I, I don't know, I think it came out possibly today, from Birzeit University. And it didn't look good. Uh, in the, on a general level, 75% of the Palestinian respondents agreed with the attack. Yeah, it's, it's really horrific. Uh, it's 
really horrific, those numbers in the opinion poll suggesting that 75% of Palestinians in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip uh, supported the attacks to some extent or another. Unfortunately, Hamas is a very faithful reflection of the Palestinian nationalist ideology of from the river to the sea, the belief that Israel has no right to exist, that all of that land should be quote-unquote liberated for uh, quote-unquote Palestine, and that that should be done violently. Hamas faithfully reflects that. Hamas is unpopular with the Palestinian public in as much as it's obviously been a complete basket case at ruling Gaza and openly says, the welfare of civilians is not our responsibility. The UN should do that. Where it's popular is on the point of violent resistance against Israel. And one of the things we've been trying to draw attention to, even though it's very difficult in the fog of war, is that in the day after Hamas, three things have to happen. The Gaza Strip has to be demilitarized. I don't need to elaborate on that. Gaza can never again be a threat to Israel. The Gaza Strip must be rebuilt, and it must be rebuilt in a way that ensures that the concrete goes to people's houses and not to the tunnels we're finding under Shifa. But also the Gaza Strip must be de-radicalized. It must be de-radicalized. You know, in the 1940s, no one said, if the Allies continue to bomb Germany and Japan, they're only going to radicalize a new generation of Nazis. Obviously, that would have been a stupid argument, because the Allies put in place a program to make sure that the next generation of Germans and Japanese did not grow up on the same diet of imperialist hatred. And now Germany and Japan are prosperous and powerful de democracies and US allies. And the root cause, the root cause of our conflict with the Palestinians is the belief that the Jewish people have no right to a state anywhere in Eretz Israel. That is the difference. Zionism is the claim the Jewish people have a right to a state in the land of Israel, where exactly the borders are, we can argue about that. Anti-Zionism, the position that the Jews have no right to any state whatsoever. And as long as Palestinians in schools are being taught by UNRWA, a UN agency, the UN branch of the Palestinian nationalist movement, as long as they're taught that Gaza isn't their home because they are refugees from 1948, yes? that Gaza isn't their home, that one day they're going to be able to live in Tel Aviv or Haifa or wherever, then obviously you're raising another generation to grow up and idolize martyrdom and jihad. And the world needs to learn some tough lessons from this failure and understand this can't be allowed to happen again. And if we want to escape that cycle of violence, we have to get serious about addressing the root cause of this conflict and that is the Palestinians' ideology of from the river to the sea, the belief that Israel has no right to exist, and the belief that it is permissible to use any amount of barbaric violence, like the sadistic Satanism we saw on October 7th, for that goal of, uh, that goal of uh, uh, creating an Islamic caliphate over the whole of, uh, of Eretz Israel. Great. Uh, you, you did mention, you touched on World War II, the United States, Japan. I wanted to have a shout out to Germany. I think Germany has surprised many with their unwavering support, very vocal unwavering support of Israel. I wanted to ask you, who, which country, well, obviously the UN is, they've always been against Israel, but which countries do you feel have let down the state of Israel uh, that you see coming out, off of this conflict uh, which do you see as the biggest letdowns, you know, surprisingly uh, have let down the Jews in the state of Israel? 
Look, I don't want to um, address specific world leaders. They are, at the end of the day, all the nations of the West are our allies, and it's important to maintain good relations with them. But unfortunately, in many countries, we're seeing a groundswell of anti-Semitic protests. I think we should call a spade a spade. That's exactly your, what they are. In your home country. Indeed. Indeed. Very large protests in uh, London. And some leaders have not withstood that pressure and are responding to that pressure in a way that, um, that is not consistent with Israel's right and obligation to defend itself. And we expect our allies to remember what they said in the very first days of this war, before the images started getting difficult, that what Hamas did was completely unforgivable, that Israel has a right and duty under international law to destroy that terror organization so it can never do it again, and that we're doing that within our obligations under international law, doing everything we can to protect civilians. But ultimately, it is Hamas, the terror organization that perpetrated the October 7th massacre and is cowardly choosing to fight that war from within densely populated areas that bears responsibility for all the destruction and tragic loss of life, tragic loss of life that we're seeing in the Gaza Strip. So, On the flip side, though, do, has any countries uh, surprised you with their support? Like all of a sudden, wow, they're vocal supporters of Israel. Who knew? You know, in every uh, round of conflict that Israel has with Hamas, we hear from the world, Israel has a right to defend itself, Israel has a right to defend itself. And then after a while, they start putting pressure on Israel. This time, there was a shift from several countries that said that not only does Israel have a right to defend itself, it has a duty to defend itself, and they want Israel to win. The Prime Minister of the UK, Rishi Sunak, stood next to our Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and said the UK wants Israel to win because they understand that free nations have to fight back against this kind of barbarism, that you just can't have a world in which jihadists can perpetrate such atrocities and get away with it, and therefore it is a national security interest for them. We've seen extraordinary solidarity from the European Union lighting up its parliament building, uh, the commission building, uh, all three presidents of the European Union standing on the steps there holding a minute's silence. We even had a very important statement from the European Union condemning Hamas's use of hospitals as human shields. That was very impressive that the European impressive, Union went yes. out of its way to condemn that because it meant that when I'm then getting asked in uh, interviews, do you have any proof that Hamas is using hospitals as human shields? I can say, well, you don't need to believe the proof that the IDF has put out. The European Union, the European Union has condemned Hamas's use of hospitals as human shields. This isn't new and this doesn't need to be something controversial. So I think this war has actually shown us uh, we do have a lot of friends and, um, and it's important that they, they um, stand strong and maintain courage uh, despite some very intense and intimidating domestic pressure. For sure. Uh, one of the things we're seeing here, I mean, there's tremendous pressure on the US government right now. And in turn, obviously, you're aware that the US government is uh, or supposedly, we don't have confirmation putting pressure on Israel. Uh, we know that the USS General. No, no, no. Let me let, let me let me stop you there. No, no let me stop you there. The United no, no. States and Israel see completely eye to eye, completely eye to eye about the goals of this war. And President Biden wrote about this in the Washington Post just this week. 
He said, we stand firmly shoulder to shoulder with the Israeli people in this war. This war must end with the destruction of Hamas and the Gaza Strip can never again be used as a base for terrorism against Israel and neither may the West Bank. So really this administration from day one when they said these atrocities were worse than ISIS all the way into the present has been completely solid and in lockstep with Israel and they understand this war has to end with the defeat of Hamas. They understand this war cannot be allowed to escalate. And that's why the United States has sent two aircraft carrier groups into the Middle East as a very clear message against anyone thinking of escalating this war. If you're thinking of joining this war, don't. Don't do it. Don't mess with the Israelis. Well, we know now that the Houthis have now hijacked a, uh, a cargo ship. And do you think this is... I mean, I'm sure you've seen the dramatic video of a helicopter landing on this cargo ship. I don't believe that. I mean, it was being leased, I believe, to a Japanese company, possibly no Israelis. Uh, do you think this is signaling almost like a broader involvement of the Houthis in this in this war? And what do you think the response should be? Look, the Houthis have been escalating their aggression against Israel. We've had several missiles fired towards Elat that had to be intercepted, including in space. That's yes. how high these missiles go. We covered At the it moment, extensively we are focusing, on this podcast. Very, very impressive, yeah, very impressive military work. Um, we are focusing on Hamas. We are focusing on destroying the monsters who perpetrated the October 7th massacre. And we don't want an escalation of the war. But we know that's exactly what Hamas is trying to do. When it told Palestinians in Judea and Samaria to take guns and knives and join in the slaughter, when it's telling Hezbollah, we expect you to step up your attacks against Israel, we know that this axis wants to intensify its attacks against Israel. And we are trying at the moment to fight Hamas and to contain this so that we can destroy the monsters who perpetrated the October 7th massacre without a wider regional escalation. And that's why it's so important, by the way, that the United States has also sent that incredible force projection into the Middle East as well to say Israel isn't standing alone. We have, uh, we have its back. Do you think we we obviously don't have a lot of uh, we get a lot of conflicting reports? It seems to be the the current trend seems to be saying that Iran wasn't directly they were caught a little bit off guard. Do you think that's accurate? I don't know exactly what Iran knew and whether it knew about the specific plans and the specific dates, but Iran is Hezbollah's and Hamas's and the Houthis' patron that has for years been arming them and training them with what we discovered on October 7th, a very like, shockingly, brutally impressive capabilities and weapons in order to perpetrate exactly these sorts of atrocities. When Iran says its goal is to kill all the Jews, here we saw one manifestation of it. So I don't think it matters whether Iran knew specifically about this specific operation because this is the sort of thing that Iran has been preparing Hamas to do. And I think that this war has also reminded a lot of our Arab neighbors, even if domestic pressure means they can't speak openly about it, they understand exactly what sort of barbarity and cruelty the Iranian axis is capable of. And they understand that ultimately we're on the same side and Hamas has to go. Absolutely. One of the things we touched on earlier, I wanna get back to it. Uh, I'm sure you've been seeing what's been going on with TikTok. Uh, in America, there's now renewed Republican calls to actually ban TikTok in the United States. The Republicans have been pushing this for a while. 
now the latest thing is that they're praising Osama bin Laden, which is which would have been unthinkable just a few years earlier. One of the things that we as Americans feel is that the narrative has been hijacked to a large degree from all of these uh, groups, especially like Students for Justice in Palestine. You see very similar uh, and very coordinated protests that are going on in America. If you go, if you go to one, it's as if you've gone to all of them. They're done very methodically and very, very well. What is Israel doing right now, really, to combat this, all this propaganda that's happening online in social media, even these protests? Is there something that Israel's preparing to do? And if so, what could you tell us about it? Look, the protests we're seeing around the world that are either actively glorifying Hamas's atrocities or condoning them or telling Israel not to defend itself against them are like one big psychotic episode. It's very difficult to understand where it is coming from and how twisted your worldview has to be that you think the sorts of atrocities perpetrated on October 7th, the burning of babies, of whole families, the torture of children, the rape of girls and women, is somehow a form of resistance. And we're doing our best to present Israel's case. That's why my interview with you now is something like the 120th interview that I've conducted <laughs> this war. And I try to take every interview and stick subtitles on it and post it on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Telegram in order to get our word out. But what we've seen in Israel now has been this incredible mobilization of civil society where people have said, look, we're not expecting the government, the state, to fight this for us. Everyone needs to roll up their sleeves and get involved. And that's what I'm doing here as well. When this war started, I was a private citizen. I got roped into being a government spokesman a week after the war started. And I think we have to see a pushback from inside the diaspora as well, that you can't just have an expectation, oh, this is something for the Israeli government to deal with. It's a, it's a big challenge. It's a huge challenge and it requires the concerted, uh, creative and spiritual abilities of the Jewish people to work together and face what is a real moment of crisis, a real moment of crisis for our people. There was an Israel before October 7th, and there will be an Israel after. And they'll be very different countries. And in the diaspora as well, a diaspora before and a diaspora world that is going to look very, very different after this outpouring of hatred and glorification of, of these atrocities dies down. And we still know it's there. We still know it's there beneath the surface, and we need to work out what we do about it. You have a captive American audience right here, and I want to be mindful of your time. What would you actually recommend that we tell our audience to do? I mean, obviously, we've been giving everybody links uh, to support, you know, monetarily. Is that the best way to go about it? I know people have been donating and, and shipping things to Israel. What could we do in the diaspora to, to support you guys? First of all, donations are very important. Israel is going to be paying for this catastrophe many, 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 many years into the future. We have 20 uh, communities that were completely destroyed on October 7th. Their people have been left with nothing, sometimes without their children, their wives, their husbands. They need to rebuild. The kibbutzim uh, need money. Um, Zaka, the emergency services who have been doing really Avodat Kodesh here, went through four years worth of equipment in three days. That's how overwhelmed they wow. were with the October 7th massacre. They're desperate for donations as well. 
Um, and we've seen all across the country people mobilizing to cook meals for soldiers. I'm having people throwing food at me because people want to do. <laughs> people, people are just desperate. People are just desperate to do anything to help, and so they see me on TV and say, "That's a great answer. He did that on a full stomach." Thanks to me. <laughs> people are just mobilizing to help in 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 any way they can, and uh, donations that that people receive from abroad make it feasible for them to. Um, to, to support these efforts and this total mobilization. But at the same time, we need Jews in the diaspora to be proud and speak proudly and push back and realize that you can't respond to bullies by hiding and saying, oh, you know what, if we don't put up the poster of the three-year-old who was orphaned and abducted, maybe that won't provoke the anti-Semites. The bear has been poked. The bear has been poked. They're out. They're coming in full force. And we have to respond to that with determination and we have to build alliances and friendships we're not alone we have many many good people who understand that this anti-israel psychotic episode around the world is very dangerous for them and for the future and health of western democratic countries we need to start building those alliances we have to make israel's case uh, proudly unequivocally on social media in the media in communities we need to have those conversations with neighbors and colleagues even when they're difficult we need to stick our heads out. We need to be proud because really this, this massacre was a moment of intense moral clarity for the world and a moral test. And a lot of people have failed that test. But we know. We know we're the good guys. We know we're the good guys. We know we're, we're Amanetzach. And we know that ultimately we will prevail. We will win. We know we need each other. We love each other. And, and we'll get through this. One last question. In many of the interviews, you always mention and you say something like, this is going to be a long and difficult war. From our perspective, what do you, when do you see, I mean, as best as you're able to say, when do you think, see things going back to somewhat uh, October 6th levels? So, for example, many in the United States, obviously many have canceled trips. You know, there's usually a tremendous amount of touring that, that goes on. Uh, the whole parties, winter birthright season has been canceled. Exactly. Exactly. When do you feel like that's going to go back and people should start booking their trips? Would you say even right now, do you, do you think people should be booking trips right now, bringing bar mitzvahs and weddings, etc.? I mean, Thanksgiving should... is one of the biggest times. Uh, look, I'm, I'm never going to tell anyone not to come to Israel. But, but we are in a war at the moment. That, that is the truth. At any moment, there can be rocket sirens. I've had to escape the TV studio three times during rocket sirens. And that can be a very stressful experience for families. Now, you know, within Israel, I think if there's one thing that people outside the country don't understand about Israel, like what is the heart of the Israeli experience? It's the relentless attempt to find a semblance of normality in the most abnormal circumstances. So people here are trying to go about their lives as normally as they can and to find some sort of routine. I hope we're not going to wait for you know, the Mashiach to arrive and, and global peace to see American Jews coming back to visit Israel. Uh, but it's important to be aware of the situation at the moment. This is a country that is deeply stressed. People aren't sleeping properly. We still have 240 hostages in Gaza, including children. Everyone is sick with worry. But you know what? If you want to come and you have a way to make yourself useful and contribute, then absolutely, uh, we'd love to see you here. And I hope that soon, 
I hope that soon we will be able to go back to, I won't say normal, there is no going back to normal, but we'll be able to go back to a world in which we can rebuild and work together and, and hopefully walk hand in hand towards, towards a better future out of, out of this trauma. Excellently said. We appreciate this time. This has been unbelievable. I want to be mindful of your time. You did say you were going to give us 30 minutes and 30 minutes it has been. Uh, but we appreciate it so much. And if we could tell you one thing, it's stay strong. And we look at you and we watch you. And I personally say, I don't know how he goes from interview to interview and has to deal with these people. So you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my secret. Yes. It's because of nice messages of support like yours. Really, my, my Instagram is exploding with nice messages that I'm getting from people around the world, especially Jews, but not only, with really nice warm words, vastly outnumbering the number of death threats that I've received. And every time I get a nice that, message, do you deal uh, there's with nothing that? To, uh, look, there's nothing I can do about the uh, anonymous death threats. You block them on Twitter and, uh, and move on. But it's the nice messages uh, that really give me strength and power to push ahead, because otherwise, it's a lonely enough moment to be uh, a Jew in this world right now. But, but when I get those messages of support, like, like your warm words right now, they, they give me strength. So thank you. Well, Ilona, I can't imagine we can a better, I can't imagine a better spokesperson uh, for us, for Israel, uh, than you. Eloquent and just, it's everything that we want to portray, you know? It's, it's humanity. It's two kinds. It's, it's kindness. So we appreciate you and we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Yalla, I'm Israel Chai. Thank you very much. I'm Israel Chai. I'm Israel Chai. Take care. So he could not have been a nicer person. Absolutely. Super nice. Well, first of all, the fact that he did this interview with like little old us, <laughs> you know what I mean? Taking time out from, <laughs> from speaking to like uh, the world. Major networks. Major right. networks to speak to us. <laughs> How did that happen, by the way? Actually, I have to give a shout out to to a couple of the guys that tagged me on Twitter. He felt like he's not doing enough podcasts. So a few a few of our followers tagged us on that post, and you know the rest is history. Amazing, amazing, and you know it, everyone needs to understand that you know he's representing the government of Israel, so he can't really he can't opine his own ideas on the conflict, right? He can't say things. So, for example, when I asked him about, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, Biden is coming under some pressure for his support of Israel, he moved the aircraft carrier, and he stopped me dead in my tracks to say, no, 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 no. Israel and America are united, and the Western world is united. So, and like, or when we asked him, you know, which country surprised you? So it shouldn't be a surprise to our listeners. He, you know, he is representing the government. For him, if he were to answer that, you know, he, he could create like an international incident. <laughs> oh, yeah. You have to be on your game. And he is perfectly on his game, by the way. And also he comes off, especially in his uh, media interviews, as a super serious guy. And he is. But I feel like we got to see just a little bit of uh, of the playful Elon. I feel like there's a lot more there. Yes. And I think it might be good if we could bring him back at some point for an extended talk where we talk just, you know, a little bit about him and his life and how he ended up, 
I mean, because I, I'm pretty shocked, as were you, that he was just a regular civilian and he just got drafted. Yeah, it's another thing I could not believe. Like a week after October 7th, he was still a regular citizen. And he and like like you said, they called him up especially for this job. I mean, now you can see why. I mean, I was totally inspired by that because when we talk about, you know, I often wonder, well, what would I do if I had to serve in the military? Now I know there's a job that I might be suited for. I don't know that you can carry the baton the way Elon does, but, you know, listen, you're welcome to well, thank, try. Thank you for the vote of confidence. <laughs> <laughs> you know I well, love you either way. Well, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm obviously not not going to be able to pick up like a, a machine gun or anything, so... They're going to have to find some use for me at some point, right? Yeah, I'm picking up arms. If I get drafted, it's it's all the way. You're ready to rock. That's right. And it's so funny. What's stopping you now, bro? What's stopping you now? You're, it, the Israeli passport. I just don't have the dual <laughs> citizenship. That's it. Nefesh Benefesh, if you're listening. Um, but also, it's funny because you're always the guy that speaks about um, you know, getting a gun permit. That's yes. what you want. You're the guy, you know? Defensive, but defensive. This is talking about going out. I mean, it is a defensive war that they're fighting, but technically— right, The whole mission is defensive. Yes, but but they're, you know, starting their day. These Imagine these IDF soldiers. They start their day. They're putting their gear on. They're going into Gaza and looking for terrorists. So you know what I'm saying? In that sense, it's an offensive role that they're taking. You think, And you think you're not capable. I, I know I'm not capable. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say that. The truth of the matter is no, n- nobody really knows what they're made of until they're in that moment. And I do like to think to myself that if I were, you know, there and, you know, if I was, you know, God forbid, in Kfar uh, Aza, you know, and I had a gun or I had that machine gun, I'd like to think I would have, you know, I would have fought back. Stepped up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. guess everybody does. Everybody does. Everybody wants to think that they'd be able to hold their own. Yeah, a lot of love, a lot of appreciation for Elon Levy coming on to our podcast. You heard what he said. He thrives on the support. So you know what to do, people. It's not hard. Yeah, and by the way, if you don't know what to do, send us a message to Hawk at KiddishClubPodcast.com. Send it for Elon. We will forward it to him. And, you know, at least he'll get that support from you guys. And, of course, the video from this podcast is going to be on our WhatsApp group. Uh, you can join that from the show notes or you can go to kiddishclubpodcast.com uh, and join the WhatsApp group from there. You can follow us on x.com. You can follow us on Instagram. And until next time, Kiddish Club out.